I want to put it in this historical context of what this series is about, which is, oh, we have this new system, gold, and it's so constricting. What if we can, what if we can put everything in human activity under the strictures of gold, except for a few maybe uh, edge case exceptions, but we'll work those out later. Well, those end up being the undoing of the whole thing. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the collection of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Sir Lester, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. This is so momentous. It's been so long in the making. It has been a long time. I think we're like one year since our last installment, roughly. Mm-hmm. And um, and I I felt like I've owed this the whole time. Like everything I've been doing, I think in the back of my mind, Got to finish, got to finish the Twilight series. Yes. So I'm super stoked about this. Yes, I am as well. And we have a line of sight on the end, actually. I think we put together, well, you've put together an outline, 63 pages. So we're, we're getting mm-hmm. close, close-ish mm-hmm. to the end. I and think I, this one, I think it will be, I think this will go pretty quickly. Okay. Um, and just for the audience who might just be tuning into this, we are extending, this is the Twilight of Gold series based on a book written by, uh, I cannot pronounce his first name, Paul Yee is his last name. Mel, we always wonder, is it Melchior or Melchior? And Mel- we don't know. Melchior or Melchior, Paul Yee. And he wrote this uh, somewhat of a, I would say it's an esoteric book. Not a lot of people have read it. 
it's hard to get actually. We had, I had a hard time getting it when we first started doing this. And um, well, maybe you could actually just take over here and just provide kind of a, a quick synopsis and then maybe a little bit of catch up where we were in the series previously and then where we're going to dive in today. The um, The book is called Twilight of Gold and the subtitle is called Myths and Realities. And what we're catching up to now is the myths and realities part. But the book, um, the book came to me through a Twitter handle who has left us. I know he still exists because he still has a Medium page. I don't want to jinx it. It seems like he wants to be more anonymous, so I'm not even going to bring him up anymore. But if you go back into this series, you'll um, hear about uh, a Twitter handle who um, messaged me about um, Pal Yi's work. But Pal Yi is footnoted in a couple of Rothbart books. Mm. And reading this book opened my eyes to the power of the gold standard and how the gold standard worked. And the reason why I was going back to study the gold standard in the first place was because I um, have a lot of conviction that Bitcoin will be the center of value. It'll be the not it'll be the non-sovereign settlement mechanism or the non-sovereign savings account that the world uses kind of like the way gold was intended to be used um throughout history and so knowing that bitcoin was going to take over as the store of value for the world i had so many questions about well how does that actually work in practice and i thought i set about to sort of casually study the gold standard and how the gold standard function on a mechanistic level. How does credit work? How I, I know that nations settle with each other, but really, how does it work? And I had a hunch that this book had some answers. And the book turned out to be something of a hagiography hey, to the gold standard. I think Pal Yi wrote, wrote this book in, started writing it, I think, in the late 60s because he saw the inflation coming. There's a lot of work on inflation that was written in the 60s and 70s because these economists who had studied these systems saw what was happening, and I think they're trying to send us a message. And so Pal Yi, before he died, was trying to codify all that he had learned as, first of all, he was a working economist. He was a chief economist at Deutsche Bank in, in Germany in the 20s, uh, a professor in, in Germany before that. So he was a working economist during, I think he was in school during the hyperinflation. No, he was working. He was actually a professor during the hyperinflation. And then um, uh, emigrated to the United States and was trying to tell us that inflation is a function of not only the underlying money, but the banking practices once the central bank has become involved to monetize the debt of the state. That that, 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 that basic process, um, he has an essay called Liquidity, and in Liquidity, uh, which was published the same year, unfortunately, as uh, John Maynard Keynes' general theory of banking relativity or banking general the general theory of money and credit. Is that what it's called? Yeah, so. it's always referred to as Keynes' general theory, um, and it's an it's a diametrically opposed viewpoint. And in liquidity, Pally states that once the central bank starts to monetize the debt of the sovereign, then you have entered the graveyard of the currency. And this all became so pressing to me because I feel like we're in the final stages of that process now and I want to understand it. 
the book became a total, totally engrossing. And um, Robert, you and I on Telegram were talking about the book and you said, well, we should, we should talk about it on my show. And I said, sure, give me a little bit of time. And then I took, I took the next nine months, basically. I kept saying, no, I'm not ready. No, I'm not ready. And uh, the first 15 hours of this podcast are us talking us through the story of the book, Twilight of Gold. Now, it is not only an esoteric book, but it's a little bit difficult to read. So I feel like what I can offer value is take what I see in there and help construct a narrative, a coherent through line. I think Pal Yi, because he, he worked as an economist, he's trying to dump the entirety of his knowledge into this book. And he, he didn't even finish it before he died. Some of his um, cohorts had to pull all of the rest of his notes together. And I think he was just trying to get it all on paper. And it does jump around in time a lot. Mm-hmm. The, the story of the book is fundamentally the story of the British pound sterling as the world reserve currency and what was happening in the 1920s that caused a shift from one standard to another. And I believe that 100 years later, what's happening now echoes what was happening in the 20s. So I think uh, Balaji has this phrase, he's repeated a lot of history happening in reverse. And I think that 100 years after the 20s, when we effectively went off the gold standard, there's a lot of nuances. We went off it in 1914 when World War started. We went back on it in 25. We semi went off of it in 1931, and then we really went off of it in 71. But I'd say in the 20s is where it where it it broke, and it took 50 years for it to for that it being broken to manifest itself. Um, that time period, the 20s, when it broke, has so many similarities to today. And um, I'm actually going to jump to the very end, and I'll repeat this quote when we get to the end of the outline. But um, I want to find this uh, this line from. Um, let me just find this one quote. While you're doing that, I'll just insert yeah. some comments here. Um, yeah, I think the big theme of this series is that we're using the gold standard, an analysis of the gold standard, as basically a prism through which we can understand what a Bitcoin standard could look like, right? Like what what would the mechanics look like, um, et cetera. Obviously, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's probably the best one we have. And then on the point that you made about the monetization of debt kind of leading to the graveyard of the currency, I mean, this is, this is just a very key point that I think we'll see spelled out time and time again, that inflation is just being used as this means of implicit default by governments, right? It's like they can't meet their debt obligations, so they print money to cover the difference and they externalize all that cost onto citizens or or productive market actors. And when you get into direct debt monetization, you're, as I think, as you you said, that Powell, you said, you're in the graveyard of the currency. And for relevance today, you know, it's in the US, we already have tax revenues are less than interest expense on the U.S. national debt today. This is 2023. So the U.S. is already in the situation where it has to print the interest, right? We can't, we have to print money to service our existing debt obligations. So we are very much in that, in that area, right? We're near the graveyard of USD 
And so I think all of the lessons that we will draw from this book are very relevant to where we are today in both looking at, you know, what Bitcoin, Bitcoin's monetization could look like and how it could change the world and what the demise of the USD and other other fiat currencies could look like uh, in the next, say, years and decades ahead. So this is um, the orange line. You can ignore the orange line. The orange line is the yield on the 10-year. But the blue line is it's uh, interest expense in the numerator divided by federal tax receipts in the denominator. I suddenly, <laughs> this is hilarious. I'm going to call attention to it. I suddenly got really self-conscious about if you look at my quick list on my on the right of my screen, you can see all the shit coins that I also look at. <laughs> so if anyone's analyzing this, I don't own any of these. <laughs> Except Core Scientific I do own, but these, I just like, it helps me keep track on what's happening, but I do not own anything down here. So don't infer anything. Uh, back to okay the to graph. Look, it's not the touch. <laughs> Now back to the graph. So this is um, interest uh, interest expense in the numerator, tax receipts the denominator. So down here, this is January of 2022, when it looked like the Fed was going to have to start hiking, when interest expense as a share of the denominator was, was 20%, below 0.2, which is historically low. Let me back up. Sorry, let me say a couple things. I'm 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 becoming Pally-esque and jumping around. Thank you for saying what I should have led with, which is this show is a the series is a monetary prism looking at the gold standard as a monetary prism to understand what a Bitcoin standard would look like. And what I have found, just like to also sum up the first 15 hours is that I think a Bitcoin standard could work. And I was surprised to find that it took me, it took me actually getting into this with you for several months to really come to the conclusion that, wow, this, this could work. This could be really cool. And I think that fiat currencies will probably still exist alongside of it because people will need money on a Bitcoin, you know, people will still be poor and there's always a marketing opportunity for governments to just hand out money and people will use whatever money they're given. Mm -hmm. So um, I think fiat currencies will still exist, but I think this will be the money that people choose to save in if they can get it, if they can buy it. I think that the people who sell Bitcoin in the future will only be those who are forced to sell it under duress, but there will be sellers. There will be forced sellers and then the total amount of four sellers will be will determine like how much is for sale. So the, the meme of 21 million divided by infinity is wrong. I think in the future it'll be 4 million divided by infinity, something like that. The rest will just be held in reserve. So um, that flip that though, infinity divided by 4 million. 4 million. Okay, thanks. Um, you know, in... The pursuit of any economic study is so overwhelming, and there is a, an, a there's an explosion, especially in Bitcoin, of metrics that people can watch. Everyone has the metrics that they pay attention to. If you 
I've never gone down the glass node rabbit hole because I hear people talking about MVRV and the the uh, um, like insane number of things that you can pay attention to as the source of truth. And I do think that for your, for one's sanity, after a period of study, you have to think long and hard about what you think is the metric that matters to you, to your story, to your investment story, and to your future. And to me, what we're looking at is the one that matters. It's a sort of inverted interest coverage ratio for the government. Traditionally, interest coverage ratio for corporations is it's 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 the opposite of it's the same ratio, but it's the opposite. It's it's um, uh, even though income in the numerator. Ex interest expense in the denominator. Yeah. So for me, I like to put interest expense in the numerator. Um, it just helps me understand it better. So, so right now today we're at 33%. I actually haven't looked at this in a while, Robert, and I'm surprised that we are now at one third of all tax receipts are fully consumed by interest expense. Now, when the hiking cycle started, which was back here, we had what I would consider a historically healthy inverted interest coverage ratio, which was 0.2. In fact, if you go to the last time it was that low, let's see, it was six, 1964. And in 1964, our debt to GDP was... I don't remember it offhand. I think it was around 30 or 40%. Mm -hmm. I might be getting the number wrong, but the debt to GDP, this this graph that you're looking at is a function of, and I know this isn't in the outline. I didn't plan to talk about this, but I, I have wanted to tell people the one thing that I pay attention to. Um, the highest that this ratio has ever been is here in 85 and that's when interest rates were at their highest. So regardless of debt to GDP, whether it's low or whether it's high, like we have now, 120%, the cost, the amount of our federal income, which is taken up by tax receipts, is a function of rates. Mm -hmm. And when rates were the highest, you had over half of all income from the government going just to interest on the debt. Yeah. Now the debt went up over time, but as you can see, the uh, the, the amount, yeah, it came down, and then it's you know it's gone. It was sort of there's you can see a nice trend line here, and then now we're shooting back up. So this to me is the one graph that expresses the debt spiral that seems unavoidable to me now. Which, yeah. as you said earlier, go ahead. I was just going to say thank you, actually, because you're correcting me here. I was saying that interest expense exceeds total tax revenues. This is saying it's 33%. I think the number I was quoting included entitlement payments. Yes. Which are not included in the federal debt number. So federal debt's, what, 30-something trillion when you add Social Security, Medicare, all of these, um, what do they call these, defined benefit plans that aren't included. Yeah. It mm -hmm. goes up to like 200 billion. So I think when you add those outlays together, it exceeds Brilliant. tax revenues. 
trillion. Yeah, they say the total unfunded liabilities is like, I think it's 100 trillion. It's over north of 100 trillion. But if you just look at yearly numbers, um, interest expense plus Social Security plus Medicare plus defense, just those exceed tax receipts. Yeah. And um, this is, I think, the second biggest one. I think defense is the biggest one. And this is the second biggest expense. You were correct, though, what you said about 10 minutes ago is that they must borrow just to pay the interest. They're not making any principal payments. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I was just looking at um, the, um, let's see, what, uh, I get my three-letter agencies. And when we say borrow, there's less and less international demand for treasuries. So it's more and more of the Fed buying this, right? Buying the treasuries. So we're basically monetizing the debt to get back to the original point. Yeah. I um, I had done this exercise for myself um, maybe about, this is during, during COVID, about what forces in the world were deflationary and what forces were inflationary. And I kind of came away with Pretty much every natural force in the economy was deflationary, but as always, as I could repeat, inflation and deflation are in fact linked sequentially. They're not in opposition with one another. Deflation is sort of the natural order, and then inflation is the policy response. Yeah. Um, but right now, it seems like everything, all the all the natural forces in the economy because of this graph we're looking at are actually inflationary. All of the forces of nature are kind of pushing us towards inflation. And the period of disinflation that we're experiencing right now is just a pause because as you can see in this graph as well, that inflation comes in waves. And well, this is this is a graph of rates rising, but this is... Um, we're between two pulses of inflation and the next one has yet to materialize, but it will materialize. So um, that's the one thing I watch. And um, I'm going to get back to the outline now. And you're watching that because what? It's a canary in the coal mine for sovereign default? Like what, what do you... Or the, I watched that leading to the graveyard of the currency, as you said earlier. Yeah, I watched that because the reason why we're going to enter an inflationary period is as rates go up, and I I I, I would assume that everyone knows this, but maybe maybe it's worth explaining as. Um, the government issues more debt. They try and sell it into the market. And as the number of buyers goes down, then the price of the bonds goes down. As there are net sellers, that drives rates up because base value and rates move in opposite directions. As the value goes down, interest rates rise. And so as the supply of treasuries goes up and up and up that drives rates up as well. Mm -hmm. 
because there's a surplus of product in the market. And that would be catastrophic to the United States and the world. And so the only way to cope with a natural force pressing up on rates is for the central bank to step in and implement what's called yield curve control, where the central bank buys the bonds, bids them up so that the rates come down. And then if you remember the graph I was showing you, we could have an extraordinary ratio of debt to GDP and that graph could go back down. The interest expense could go down because rates have an outsized effect on the total interest cost. And in fact, it would work out well for the government because as they create inflation and the central bank pushes money into the economy, then GDP will go up in nominal terms. And at some point, if they create enough inflation, they'll bring GDP back down to 60-70% of our total debt. So if you had, let's say you had um, 50, 50 trillion in outstanding publicly held debt and you had, um, or let's say you had 70 trillion, just to make it super easy, it's at 70 trillion in debt. You think, oh, that's a lot of debt. Well, it's not a lot of debt if the um, GDP every year is 100 trillion, um, then you're at 70%. Or you, what if you're 110 trillion in GDP? What if the average U.S. salary was two to five million? The average U.S. home cost 20 million, or or 40 million, and a loaf of bread was 300 dollars? Like you would be exactly as wealthy in real terms as you are today, but the central bank would be able to normalize policy, and they would be able to afford real rates, real positive rates. Right now, the central bank cannot afford for yield to be positive in real terms. They need it to be negative in real terms. In, in other words, they need inflation to be higher than whatever they're paying in interest mm -hmm. in order to in, in order for the system to literally not contract upon itself. So that's why I watch that number. And by the way, it's not like that number is some clean formula where once it gets to 0.4, then it triggers. I don't. I don't have it broken down that cleanly, but it gives me a large, like a sense directionally where is it headed, and how it gives me a way to measure how I perceive as like almost as if I'm a creditor to the government, although I don't own any bonds. How do I feel? You are the right. This is a holding currency. It's true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Do you think that covers what that means? No, I, th I think that's great. And um, just to spell out negative real yields, right? This is where the inflation rate, which is obviously a very nebulous term, and you can't, we can't actually have a specific rate or universal rate, but it's where inflation exceeds interest rates, right? So mm -hmm. there's a negative real yield occurring, and central banks need to have that in place so they can externalize. Um, you're inflating away debt, right? You're inflating away government debt. And so where people are bearing the interest or bearing the inflation burden and can only yield, generate um, market returns based on interest rates, they're basically getting diluted by the difference, right? So it's a negative real yield. That's right. It, 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 when, when the real yield is negative, it means that no matter what interest you're earning on your bonds, you're losing money. That's right. Exactly.
Well, let me go back and I have a preamble to my preamble. One of the first things we talked about in episode one, we talked about what is money. And we talked about money being essentially an anti-value or money is a reflection or a mirror of the economy it serves. The economy is the actual value. The total number of saleable goods and services in the economy is the real wealth. And then it gets reflected in the occurrence in the currency, and then the currency can have any number of units. It really doesn't matter if there's, a, you know, uh, five dollars in the economy, or hundred trillion dollars in the economy. They will just get divided among the number of saleable goods and services. And so money is essentially just like a mirror of what the economy has to offer, and in a very similar way. The dominant monetary medium that people use for savings that holds the value that people actually look to tends to be a, a mirror reflection of the regime in power at the time. And whether it's the people are in power of the money or a small group of government officials are in power of the money, they tend to choose a money specifically for how it caters to their interests. I, I, I'm, ex I, I'm telling you exactly what I do. I choose Bitcoin because of my own selfish best interest. That is why I choose it. And I think that central bankers, government officials, they're all rational, self-interested people, and they choose the money that serves their interests the best. And there are these famous stories about how gold when it was changing hands in you know before and after the world war world war 1 world war 2 era that gold you know tends to pool in these centralized dungeons in london or new york and that when one country paid another there would be some clerk who would just take a slip of paper and walk it from one pile to the other so crazy and i think of like a uh, 100,000 people dying in a battle nations going to war essentially over wealth and at the end of this battle that's happening in the air or in the sea or on land there's a conclusion and as a result someone walks a slip of paper from one pile to another one day the pile of gold might have a slip of paper that says germany one day it might have a pile of piece of paper that says england or the united states You know, I dislike gold. Sorry. Gold is faulty. I won't say I dislike it. I kind of love gold, but gold is faulty because it is perfect for this system of centralized control. And I think that's why regimes like it. And I don't think gold will work in the future because of this problem. However, I do think governments will try to bring gold back because it serves their interests the best. It is actually a monetary medium that works really well for centralized power. And so I do think there's some political advantage to gold for the existing power structure. And I think there's going to be an attempt to bring it back. Um, but Bitcoin's only going to grow and succeed 
if and when the financial politics of the people who hold Bitcoin, whether they're in power because their numbers are so great, but they're all plebs, or because they're in power and there's only 10 of them, it's only going to work if it actually serves their own selfish best interest. Mm -hmm. So, uh, to me, it means that this thing we're doing, which is explaining what money is and how it works, is is valuable because um, it helps people understand what they're competing against and what power they have as well. Yeah, lots of good stuff there. I'll just insert here. Um, money as a mirror, I think, is very interesting, right? It's not the wealth itself. It is just a a tool for reflecting the value of that wealth, mm -hmm. um, quantifying the value of that wealth, you know, converting ordinal valuations into cardinal prices, as the Austrians might say. And um, so it's interesting that, that it has that reflective capacity. You know, it's almost like a, a, a it's like a cognitive tool in a way, similar to something like language, right? The word is not the thing necessarily, but by using words, we can better reflect on the things and communicate about the things. And the same is true with money. Hence the reason we often call it the language of value. And then on the the existing power structure piece, I would take it maybe a step further and say the, the existing power structure is existentially dependent on the centralization of gold. Right? Like we wouldn't have had central banking at all, and we wouldn't have had nation states of this scale without the central, really the centralization of gold, right? Which leads to the central planning of money more broadly. And so I think, well, what am I trying to say there? It's something about the character of the money becomes the character of the civilization we build on top of a particular money sort of inherits the attributes or even the flaws in this case you might say of the the money being used. So in the case of gold, it suffers in terms of portability. So it makes a lot more sense for us to centralize the custody and abstract it into currencies. And so that lends itself to a highly centralized bureaucracy, right? You have all the economic power in one place, so all the political power sort of coalesces to that central repository of, of economic power. Mm -hmm. And um, and I agree with you, Bitcoin only works to the extent that it serves the rational self-interest of, of economic actors. And I think that moves in proportion with government overgrowth, right? Like as government continues... Basically, in a fiat world, government growth is unchecked, right? It can just keep printing money and expanding, whether it's profitable, whether it's meeting the, the preferences of citizens or not. And in that world, you get a more coercive, compulsive, violent government. And so as that coercion, compulsion, and violence swells, you actually are pressing up against the self-interestedness of, of individual citizens. And so people that decide, hey, I don't want to be inflated. I don't want to be a victim of inflation. I don't want to be a victim of wealth redistribution. I don't want to be a victim of capital controls. Um, or I just want to, you know, 
flee this country and go to a better jurisdiction. All of these things lend themselves toward uh, two rationally interested individuals having more demand for Bitcoin. So I kind of see that moving as like almost like a seesaw, right? As the government continues to overgrowth continues to swell on a fiat paradigm, we're actually increasing demand for Bitcoin on the other side. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. If the United States ceased printing money, if governments around the world, because Bitcoin is a global asset, stopped all capital controls and let money move wherever it wanted to move freely, if through labor, the average middle class person could buy a single family house, if you could just satisfy those conditions, then Bitcoin probably wouldn't have a future. Like fiat currencies would just be fine. But because those things, like, but because there are extensive and growing capital controls, because we're being like locked in everywhere we go, and because you need um, two incomes, maybe to buy a house, and like that's been the case for like the last ten years in a city, then you get middle class become radicalized, and uh, there's um. There's a quote I have at the end. I, I was trying to find it earlier. It's from uh, Perry Merling's The Inherent Hierarchy of Money. And he says that at the extreme of elasticity calls for reassertion of scarcity, gain prominence. At the extreme of scarcity calls for reassertion of elasticity, gain prominence. Neither tradition ever wins out completely, however, because the system both tradition because in the system both traditions are trying oh, because the system both traditions are trying to understand has both aspects at all times mm. um and i think that bitcoin was a really abstract strange idea to people until they started to understand it fundamentally and the waking up is literally just happening i mean it may be that you and i have been obsessed with this for for me i found bitcoin in 2015 but um when i talk to people at parties they still pretty much have no idea what i'm talking about i have to explain it in other ways and there's this anecdote i've repeated a couple times but just talking to a super smart dude at a cocktail party and again you know i'm i'm in california and Everyone here talks about real estate prices and I explained to him that the real estate is not becoming more value. It's the part of your dollar that buys the real estate is becoming less valuable. And I just saw that shock of recognition on his face. Like he had never considered it that way. He had never encountered that problem. Mm. And this was a very smart dude in his forties 
who has a good career and is operating at like the top of his game in his career. But this is not the way he had ever thought about it. Yeah. And I, I just don't ever forget that because I thought, well, if he doesn't understand it, then no one understands it. Now, if you live in Argentina, you understand it. It's part of the culture. But here you don't. And so, yeah, I think that the the demand for this will actually come from working middle class people who understand that the problem is with with the money. That's such a key tenet of critical thinking too, to just always invert. Like when, no matter what frame you're using to look at something, you should always kind of try to step out of the frame and look at it. Look at the thing you're trying to look at. Use the thing mm-hmm. you're trying to look at as the frame for evaluating the frame through which you're looking. <laughs> in this case, instead of looking at houses in terms of dollars, you could learn, look at dollars in terms of houses, right? It's the purchasing power of the dollar that's declining rather than the price of the house going up. It's a very simple thing, but very few people, I think, stop to do it. Um, I also want to jump back to your talking about that um, nation, the nation state sort of coalesced around the, around the inferior properties of gold for a reason. And I, I also want to say I spent... I spent like three weeks uh, last last month. I just spent three weeks on um, Jason Lowry's book, mm. Soft War. Yeah. And it was super profound, really affected me. And not even because of the Bitcoin stuff. Mm-hmm. But his narrative around the evolution of, of, of abstract thinking, which led to languages, which led to narratives, and narratives lead to power... I can't stop seeing it everywhere. I just can't stop seeing it. I don't even think the value of software is, I don't even think he comes to a real conclusion about Bitcoin, but 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 to me, Bitcoin is is the answer and, and his book explains the problem without really drawing a direct line as to why Bitcoin is the answer, but it mm-hmm. it is. And I think, it's, I think it partly is the answer because Bitcoin itself is yet another narrative. If you look at Craig Warmke's um, paper on Bitcoin being a shared fiction and that binary, miners are essentially competing for the right to author the next chapter. And um, that is very appropriate to me. And so, uh, again, it's not that money, it's not that I think that money is a shared delusion. It's we, Money is an important technology for coordinating the activity of all, human, of all humans. And I think that because we, because we d- discovered the technology of money, and because we need specialization, we will always have money. Mm-hmm. So the question is, which money? And, right. uh, you know. Um, yeah, it, it, just again, to draw the analogy to language, you know, would you say that English is a shared delusion or a shared hallucination? Right, right. No, like it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a consensus technology. It's a social construct, you know, a, uh, you could say it's a narrative structure in a way. And so these things are very essential to human rationality, human cooperation, and the transmission of knowledge, right? Um, to call it a collective belief system or a delusion or a hallucination, I think just really discredits its its significance. The, the, the whole um, focus of this, the back half of, this series is going to be focusing on. I mean, since since we're here, we we got here organically. I want to. We're going to be talking again and again in different ways about myths. What myths exist around money? What myths existed specifically around the gold standard? 
try and dispel some of those myths, but also continuously, and, and Robert, you're so good at helping me with this, try and tease out, well, what value did that myth serve at the time to the people in power? I think that's the most important part is not just explaining. I'm going to use uh, Palyi and, and and leaning a lot on Rothbard to help dispel some of the big myths around the role of gold in the Great Depression. But I think the thing that you and I need to do together is to help explain, well, who perpetuated that myth and why? That's That's the key thing. And then we as Bitcoiners, what myths do we want to perpetuate? What myths are valuable to us? What myths do we unconsciously perpetuate that are wrong? And which ones can we focus on that are right? Um, here's three main myths that we'll that we'll address specifically. And I'm we we go on so many digressions. I I want to sort of lay some of this out a little early. And these are very very straightforward. One, I don't know if anyone's aware of this, but there was this myth that so Britain had to go back to the it chose to go back to the gold standard in 1925, and they had to choose what price their money was going to go back to gold at. They went back at $4.86 per pound rather than $4.40, which is where the pound was trading in 25 organically. And so essentially, you know, Great Britain overvalued the pound, meaning there were more dollars to the pound than less. And so they're saying the dollar is worth $4.86, not $4.40. And they may that may seem like not that much. It, I'm giving a, the approximate numbers as to where it was trading. It was trading at ten to twenty percent lower than where they were valued at. And there's this um, there, there's a myth that going back at the price that England went back at caused the death of the gold standard or caused England to go off of it. Um, I don't think that's a myth that like many people are aware of, but it's an interesting one, and we're going to get more into what that myth meant and why it was perpetuated. Um, number two, there's this idea, and this I hear all the time from, I think this is just a product of the university system, yeah. but that capitalism was to blame for the Great Depression. This is a big one. This is Keynesian bullshit, right? Yeah, that um, the depression, that the 1920s was capitalism run amok, and the depression is what happens when you get capitalism and um, therefore the answer is uh, an altered version of capitalism. That one, it's like very self-evident why that why that myth exists and who benefits from it. it. The central bank benefits from it the most. You guys can't just have unstructured capitalism. You need a governor to structure your capitalism and... That is like an incredibly powerful myth that people still believe. And it's part of partially why people believe. I mean, there's another myth I didn't even put in here is that like inflation is just like a natural part of it's like part of nature and that it must exist. All these are tied together. Even Britain going back to the gold standard at 486 is tied to the idea that capitalism was to blame for the Great Depression. And then the third, a third one that we can handle in the scope of this show is that a gold shortage caused the depression and that the inability of gold to service new debt caused the lengthening of the depression. I mean, just to like bat this one out of the way early, there was seven times the amount of gold versus liabilities in the system 
um, at, in the depression at the, at the start of the depression. So there was room for more credit. That's like uh, the kind of statistic we'll talk about in in more detail later. Um, and you know, even as I say that one, I went to I went back and and I tried to independently verify pretty much everything I read. Um, but I still see in my notes places where I'll take things at face value from either Pally or Rothbart. And I will tell you that that number, 7x the amount of gold versus liabilities, I I don't know where that exactly is coming from. So that's that's one that I'm just taking at face value from the authors. And and again, that's another thing we should say about this series. The series is, you know, for me, this was a, a scholastic endeavor at monetary history, meaning I'm not an economist. You have to look at this whole discussion as a presentation of a of a book. This is essentially the longest book report in history. But um, if there's anything that doesn't make sense or anything that you think is wrong, it might be and you should look it up because that's what I tried to do. I would just throw in here to you, anyone that's really curious about the Great Depression and its actual causes, what actually drove it, I think Rothbard's uh, book, America's Great Depression, is just phenomenal. Um, it dispels all the Keynesian myth about gold causing the Great Depression and does it in a very thoughtful, methodical way. So I, would- I have so many quotes from that book it outlined for us that I'll be reading. Like th- that book is plays heavily into what we're going to do over the next couple episodes. It's 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 incredible that book. Okay, so that by the way was the preamble to the preamble. But because I haven't talked to you in a year. Like I just had some things that I wanted to share first. So now that people know that we're going to finish the story, I did want to talk about a couple other things because they're timely or they're just things that I thought you'd get a kick out of thoughts. Um, it just dawned on me that, you know, there's this dialogue about, you know, when, when Jack tweeted that hyperinflation is coming to the US the, over, over a year ago, there's a lot of debate and I think a lot of people think that in their bones, that it just can't happen here, that that's something that happens elsewhere. But people should know that it already began. It already happened once in the United States, and we were on our way there in the 70s. And so that is just like a very important thing to keep in mind, that this thing that we think is so foreign and so impossible has happened within our system once already, and we didn't fix the underlying thing that caused it. In fact, we made it worse. That's my that's my opening thought. A. Um, here's my opening thought. B, which is I have an update on my view on gold, and I have actually bought gold again in the last year. Um, it is a, it is a, I have 1% of my big, my, of what I hold in Bitcoin, I hold in gold and number on, on some level, it's just like, I found an excuse to buy gold again. Every time I get into this research and I start reading about it, I just, I kind of have like, um, a monetary fetish for it. And it, and it really, whenever, whenever I'm reading about it, it makes me want to buy it. So I think I was looking for any excuse. So if you want to disregard what I'm saying about gold because I'm psychologically predispossessed towards wanting some, you feel free. 
But I'm going to tell you what specifically I absorbed and why I bought gold in the last year and why that has changed. Because when we finished the series, part one of the series, I was I had sold all my gold. I'd owned it and then I sold it all. Um, there's a really good uh, Luke Groman, Grant Williams uh, interview. And I'm going to read what Groman said to Grant Williams. He said, um, de-dollarization does not represent the end of the dollar as the global reserve, as the global currency of exchange, but it does signal the end of treasuries as the neutral reserve of asset. Treasuries being the neutral reserve asset only happened from the 1980s to 2014. But in all years previous, even though the dollar was the unit of account, gold was still the reserve asset. And that's the difference. That's that's like a very significant point to keep in mind. Um, because... So post 71, really, right? Like post, that's why it became the neutral reserve asset? Yeah. But before that, um, once there was no more gold to, once once there was no way to um, settle between nations in gold and dollars became the thing that people were using because they they were able to salvage the dollar system through the petrodollar system and now everyone first everyone you know oil consumption grew throughout the century and as trade increased in dollars and the need for dollars increased then the need to save in dollars increased and if you're going to save in dollars you're going to a you're going to need something that gives you a little bit of guaranteed yield and number two, you're going to need something that is outside the banking system because banks can all fail. And, and essentially, treasuries, if you hold them directly, they are outside the banking system. Mm -hmm. they're a, a, you can always sell them because they're an asset that you can sell into the marketplace that if, you're, if your entire bank in your country defaults or even your central bank, if you're holding treasuries, you can always get your face value back. So treasuries became a really attractive way for countries with a with a uh, export positive export balance, they they had to save, and if they're earning in dollars, if all global trade is happening in dollars, and they're earning in dollars, then they want to save at least partially in dollars because they're going to need them, and so they're going to buy treasuries. Treasuries are the next best thing to gold. So that thing that I just described only only existed from the 80s to 2014. But that outside money before that was gold. So I'd say just lodge that in your can um having a having having a conversation about the health of the treasury market doesn't necessarily mean there's a we're having a conversation about de-dollarization. Mm -hmm. Dollars could just be a thing that continue to exist. Um so that was like, and, and I'm and I'm just trying to give like I'm trying to put like there's a a collage of facts that I absorbed that this is all towards what led me back to wanting to buy a little bit of gold, and that was one of them. I think that nations are the one of the reasons I like Bitcoin so much is that I've always thought 
it works so much better than gold. And when sovereigns discover the power of Bitcoin, they're going to save in it and it's going to serve their interests better than gold, except for the centralization part. Mm -hmm. But they are going to be in search of a neutral savings asset and it has been gold and gold is what they already own. So to me, that like is one argument in favor of the politically calculated opportunistic desire to own gold because the powers that be might choose to revalue gold at a higher price. So this was also super interesting and it was it was part of the same podcast where he explained how the Chinese capital account, the 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 the, the central bank of China's capital account is now open on a limited basis. There is you put there's a thing called the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board. And you can go to the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board. You can go there with Chinese Yuan and you can exchange it for gold and then you can take the gold home. And I, a lot of people, I, I had heard for years that, well, um, China's capital account is closed and there's no way to, that the Yuan won't be the, 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 currency of the world because their capital account is closed. And I don't know that Yuan will take over as the... I'm not making that argument. I don't really think that. But I'm talking about chinks in the armor of the dollar. And the Chinese are aggressively trying to trade in their currency, and they have set up a mechanism whereby their trading partners can... If Let's say you are a... you know, China needs a lot of commodities, so the ones that they can't produce oil being one of them. And so if you're if you have a net trade balance with China that's positive where you're actually selling more to China than you are buying, then there was really nothing you could do with your yuan before except maybe buy things back from China that you can't make at home like televisions. But now, let's say you're an oil exporter from the global south or from the Middle East and you sell more to China than you buy and you've got leftover yuan, hypothetically, you can go to the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board and you can trade those yuan for gold and you can take the gold back to your country. And Groman explained why this was, why this was important in a way that I also found really fascinating. And he said, the new system corrects two mistakes that the United States made. And this, when he, when he, when he talks about two mistakes, he's talking about two mistakes that the United States made post Bretton Woods. The first mistake being that they pegged the dollar to gold. This is a mistake because all pegs break. The second mistake they made was that when the United States started to run deficits in 71, the only way they could pay those deficits was to ship out their gold. So just to unpack that a little bit. Him sort of stating as a law of the universe that all pegs break was very mind expanding for me because I've known that, you know, all governments tend to run deficits in time. That seems to be like a law of human nature that the government in power is going to print more money, is going to is going to spend more money than they have. And if they can, they're going to print the money. But like the fact that just saying all pegs break and saying it as a, like a fundamental economic law was like, I mean, we went through, you know, we went through like the Luna fiasco. It just feels right to me. All pegs break. It's not even their fault. 
Well, these are, I mean, the price of every commodity or the, the other way to think about a price is as an exchange ratio, right? So the number of cars per house or houses per car, you can trade any, you can numerator and denominator any two commodities. They're always moving dynamically against one another. So when you talk about a peg, you're trying to statically fix a relationship, right? Certain number of dollars per ounce of gold, for instance. It sort of intuitively makes sense that that thing is going to break at some point because yeah. you can't, it's supply and demand, right? So for you to just say by policy, this is our price of gold, you have you have a fixed exchange ratio that's going to deviate from what the market says the exchange ratio for dollars of gold is, right? So you end up with white market, black market situation. So, I mean, that one seems, I think it's good. I think it's a great way to put it, to simplify it and make it almost like an economic law, essentially. Um, you know, this is in, intuitively makes a lot of sense too. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Well, this is this is I'm trying to um I'm I'm trying to figure out what I think of 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 drive chains of Bit300. Do you do you spend any time thinking about that? Is that anything you thought about? Not much at this point. Well, for anyone that does think about it, I just want to say that I I don't know exactly what I think about it. I'm still reserving judgment and I'm starting to like think about it more and more. But I'm thinking about it in the context of what you and I are talking about right now and that that it's it's a it's fundamentally a way to create more we talked about in the first part of the series about the human drive for automaticity that in all economic systems, humans have desired these unbreakable rules that the protocol imposes on all economic actors and that it binds the hands of the central bank by creating this elaborate rule set. And because the rule set is so elaborate and confining that the central bank will be bound to the strictures of the rule set and therefore they can never debase the currency because they're powerless. The drive for that did not start with Bitcoin. It started a long time ago and has manifested itself in many different ways. And we talked about Peel's Act in 1847 being like the most impressive attempt at like a, a precursor to the 21 million meme was this, the way they structured the Bank of England in 1847 was like quite ironclad. And of course they broke it immediately. And it brings me back to the Luke Roman law that all pegs break. And Bit300 is essentially a way to put side chains on Bitcoin and and so that the value of the side chains is is through software and through the automaticity of bitcoin that the value of the side chains is pegged in an, in the, the value isn't pegged but the redemption mechanism is built into the software and i think the reason why i'm not convinced on the value of drive chains is that we have this desire as human institutions to create to expand the rule set to encompass more and more 
people so that they fall under the jurisdiction of this new rule set. And I think BIP300 is trying to create the ability to create up to 256 shitcoins on Bitcoin. And so to encompass their politics within the strictures of Bitcoin's politics. But if you go if you go back to what's significant about soft war, which is that the development of language was fundamentally a new way for people to um, create narratives and power structures that gave power to the people who could wield the language the best, and to take it a step further, that computer language is simply another step in the evolution of abstract human non-machine language. That machine language is, although it seems like it's this inviolable thing, it's not. It's just another human readable language that is a way to codify a bunch of human rules. And the more we try to make Bitcoin do things other than what it does best, and the more we try and like think of Bitcoin as like the ultimate truth for all people under all circumstances, then I think the more we open it up to the perversion of language, myth, and narrative, that is the undoing of most monetary systems. And I think Bitcoin is better when it's it's just Bitcoin and it doesn't... I, I mean, we already have wet sidechains, which is sidechains exist and they go through the pegging process through human institutions. We already have that. Mm -hmm. Why do we need to try and make Bitcoin govern the peg in, peg out process when I think it's a fundamentally flawed system either way and but we're trying to like set up these really strict rules so that you do it through Bitcoin, but and you, but you'd have to get into the specifics of Bit three hundred. And like I said, I'm not specifically saying I'm against it. I'm putting a lot of thought because I'm curious about it and there's benefits to it. But it is I want to put it in this historical context of what this series is about, which is oh we have this new system, gold, and it's so constricting. What if we can what if we can put everything in human activity under the strictures of gold? except for a few maybe uh, edge case exceptions, but we'll work those out later. Well, those end up being the undoing of the whole thing. So that's 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 my that's me trying to work in something current that I'm thinking about into this, but it it's this is a I think this is why this discussion is a really good prism through which to to look at the future Bitcoin standard. And I think that I don't know, I think bit 300 is problematic. right now I'm going to say I think it's problematic for these reasons for me. So back to what Groman said about all pegs break. So if the peg break broke, the only way the United States could make good on their deficits was to ship out their gold, meaning they have this reserve of gold and they owe more than they made. And so they, they, uh, they, have, to, they, have, to, they have to settle up. And the way nations settled up was to ship gold back and forth or for clerks to go back and forth and change where the slips of paper were. But the fact that they set up a peg post Bretton Woods, the peg broke, it, it, it made it necessary that the United States would run out of gold. And so the way that the Shanghai International Board, Gold Exchange International Board works is not the same way. They solve the problem by number one, there's no peg to the yuan. Gold trades freely. And so if you earn yuan, you can go exchange it for gold and the gold will appreciate in yuan terms. So it's this kind of like, it's mutually beneficial, meaning you can now earn money exclusively in yuan. You have a way to now redeem them for an asset that can't be inflated, aka gold. And then you can go back and 
exchange it back for yuan when you need to buy more things from them. So this was like something the United States didn't do early on, and this is an improvement. And then the second improvement is that the gold that you get at the Shanghai International Board isn't gold from China. Gold, The gold within China can't leave, but everyone else goes to trade their gold there. So you're getting gold from, from someone else. It's just an exchange and you're getting gold from... I'm sure that I'm sure that the, that the Chinese have an agent which places some gold on the exchange there, but if you're if you're a, an international participant there, you can't put money on the inside, and if you're on the inside, you can't put money on the outside officially. Hmm. Again, the whole reason I'm saying this is that there is now with uh, the largest exporter in the world, I think the largest exporter in the world. I don't know if that's true. So what China. are the largest? Yeah. I think they were a lar- they were a significant net importer of gold for the past several years and a major producer. I just meant of goods. Oh, of goods, yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, so, the production factor so of the ba- world, but also a huge importer of gold and producer of gold. So, so they now telling that they don't let gold leave the country, and they're a major importer and they're a major producer. Like they're playing to gold essentially. Yeah, they are playing to gold, and they've been they've been playing to gold for decades. Yeah. Um, so again, another brick in why have I bought some more gold? This mechanism exists. Um, so I started reading, as you can tell, more about the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board, and you can down they they wrote a PDF. It's on their Shanghai International Exchange website. You can download it. It's probably one where I should share my screen again so you can see this. This is uh um there's a medium account called Gold Observer, and I, I I recreated his work. He did he, uh, um. You zoom into that just a little bit. Yeah, let's see. I just hit the zoom button, but it didn't actually zoom. So let me do it this way. Okay, how's that? That's better. Um. So this is a, a screen capture from the trading rules of the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board. And if you look at, I just wrote what these symbols mean, product code AU99.5 is three kilogram, kilogram bar. This is just like which products there are. I think these, the ones that start with AU are futures and options. And um, so this section up here is for the main board which is domestic domestic china domestic chinese china and this section down here is international non-domestic so and and um this little underlining meme which this medium account uh, gold observer he did it first i didn't he invented underlining but you can see that if you're a domestic member or customer then you can load in and load out gold transaction delivery are allowed domestically, not internationally, just domestically. Transaction and delivery allowed. So it's a full-on gold exchange where you can deposit gold, withdraw gold. However, if you're an internet and 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 um and if you're an international customer in the domestic market, transaction and delivery are allowed, meaning you can transact with people 
on the inside and deliver gold to them, but you can't load gold into your vault or load it out of your vault. So you have to trade only with gold that's already inside the system. That's if you're an international member. So I drew a little line here. This is a permeable, this red line is a permeable membrane. It is a selectively permeable membrane. This is domestic, this is international. Yuan flow back and forth. Gold can flow from members and to members into China and, and into the exchange and back into China and vice versa. And if you're international, gold can, can move between members, from members to members, in and out of the vaults, but nothing no gold crosses this line officially, but Yuan do. And, and this is an improvement over the Bretton Woods system, and it exists today. Uh, so I don't want to dwell on this graphic for too, much, for too much longer, but I was very... I found it haunting to know that this exists well, already. The, and the gold standard exists, basically, right? Yeah. It does. Interesting. Um, and uh, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. That um, there was this uh, this guy, Chris Wood, wrote, writes a, it's another newsletter called Greed and Fear, but he had heard this rumor that, I'm just going to read from it, Greed and Fear heard one interesting rumor when in China recently that Saudi was using renminbi, that's the one of the words, that's interchangeable for you on. Mm -hmm. It was using renminbi it was receiving for oil to buy gold on the Shanghai exchange. Greed and Fear has no idea if there's any truth to this, but it's certainly interesting that such stories are circulating. On this point, it should be remembered that China launched in 2018 renminbi denominated crude oil futures contracts on the Shanghai International Energy Exchange, and the renminbi has been fully convertible into gold on exchanges in Shanghai and Hong Kong since 2017. So um, this is all pointing to why I think gold may serve a role, a politically expedient role in the future, and that there are forces trying to bring gold back or to make it relevant. There's more. Am, is, am, am, by the way, Robert, is this interesting? Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay. Because we, uh, again, we... Tend to think in binaries, right? Like, is are we on a gold standard or we're we on a fiat standard? But the reality is, there's these little pockets of gold standardization. This being a major one, right? That people can actually yeah. swap in and out of through this. I forgot what you call it, the Shanghai Gold you know, Exchange gold. International Board. Yeah. Um, and these, like, you're giving people access to a gold standard, so it stands to reason that that might come into greater demand as fiat currencies are further deprecated. Um, so when people say things like, oh, the government will never allow that, it's like, well, go go look in the world today. Like, this, these things already exist. They're operational. Um, and also useful for maybe considering what a government would do on a Bitcoin standard. Like, would they have a Bitcoin window? And what would that look like? Uh, presumably it would be, obviously you wouldn't need to load in, load out necessarily, be all digital. But um, I, would, I would imagine they would have a similarly selectively permeable membrane, as you mentioned, to try and keep Bitcoin in the country or in the white market versus going out into the black market. And it's kind of interesting to think about how that might work. I don't know how I didn't think about that. <laughs> that is, this is, your, I'm going to share the screen again. 
because I think that is so cool that you just said that and that that is, uh, I think this is exactly how it would work. You'd have, you know, different contracts, different futures contracts. If you are, um, you know, within your country, again, assuming that fiat's, fiat currencies still exist, mm -hmm. if you're a domestic customer, you can deposit Bitcoin and you can withdraw Bitcoin. You know, I guess here's why that wouldn't work because, because it's Bitcoin. And because you can always just route around it. Well, you'd have to be KYC'd, I guess, if you're domestic. And then maybe yeah. international don't have to be. I'm not. It just changes the way this would work if you did it with Bitcoin, right? It's harder to draw that that red line <laughs> between. It is numbers. a lot harder. Yeah, I don't think Bitcoin caters, caters to this system. Although there's something there that, that I would like to think more about. Okay. Um, so then I went and started reading the Gold Observer and there's some things happening in terms of gold that I wasn't aware of. He has an article called How a Central Bank in the Caribbean Recently Used Its GRA to Cover Losses. So GRA is, it's um, European central banks have this, this thing called, in, in their accounting, called their gold revaluation account. Now it's, not really an account. It's just a, in, in, in accounting terms, it's an account, uh, but it's, it's, it's just an accounting identity. Um, it's not like an account they have in a bank. It just means it's uh, a number that goes into their final bookkeeping. And that number is what would their gold holdings be worth if it was marked to market right now? Now, since most European central banks have owned their gold since it was worth $30, $35, $40 an ounce. Their gold revaluation account, meaning the accounting identity, which which tracks the current value of their gold is much higher, is, is totally is positive, like extremely positive. However, they're not allowed to list GRA values on their official equity. They're not, not allowed to recognize it as part of their equity. It's just an accounting identity that exists separately, but is not official. Like they could be at a loss and they can't point to their gold having appreciated as part of their value. And by the way, the United States does the same thing. Yep. Statutorily, the United States has all this gold and it's valued at, I think, $42 an ounce. Yep. I don't know where that number came from, but the store look cost, at I think. that was the cost. I think that was their historic cost basis and they carry it at that. So the, the mark to market would be a $1,960 ounce per ounce gain, something like that. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like our official treasury books today, they'll list their gold as if it was all worth $42 an ounce. Yep. So this central bank in the Caribbean, I'm going to read a quote from a, a paragraph from this article by, buy, by selling and immediately buying back some of its gold reserves. The Central Bank of Curaçao and St. Martin managed to use its gold revaluation account to offset losses in 2021 because many other monetary authorities are currently making losses too and there's no limit to revaluing gold against fiat money. This trick could be used the world over to heal central bank's balance sheets. So like to explain what they did was they had all this gold and you can look at their you can look at the transaction record 
they found a willing partner. You have to find someone who's, who's, who will let you do this. But you sell them all your gold so you get cash for it. Then you immediately buy it back for the same amount. But now you have an asset that's worth the cash you that you bought it for. So like just to put some numbers behind it, let's say, Robert, you and I have- basis, Exactly. It's a step up in basis. So you and I have a central bank that has a trillion dollar loss, but we're holding this gold that's undervalued by 500 billion. We sell it for 500 billion. We get the cash. Now we dispose of the cash and get the gold back. But now the gold, instead of being worth, you know, a million is worth 500 million, 500 billion. So now we, we essentially, instead of having a loss of a trillion, we have half a trillion loss. So you take that realized um, gain and put it against your existing losses and abracadabra. You've cut your yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a reverse version of what I did when Bitcoin went down, which is I'd, you know, I, I, I'm always buying Bitcoin. So I bought Bitcoin at every price. And so when Bitcoin went down, I took the realized loss. This is them. And then I bought the Bitcoin back again, which is legal to do under current tax law. They're doing the opposite. They're, they need their, they need their official balance sheet to look better. And they have this asset that's worth a lot more, but they can't claim it unless they sell it and buy it back. So, um, not only, not only did the Caribbean do it, but he has another article. I didn't, I didn't pull it here, but he has another article where there's, um, gosh, I think it's, uh, the Netherlands. There's, there's, there's a, a European central bank that was asked about their massive losses on their balance sheet and the central and the president of the central bank said, well, you know, we don't really have losses because we have the GRA. So he was making a direct reference to the fact that they can use their GRA to put their bank in positive territory, and that's an EU member bank. So that's pretty interesting. Um, another thread to, to sort of tease out that I wasn't able to exactly figure it out is that Luke Roman, who I quote a lot, he has said casually in interviews that the Europeans um, mark their gold holdings to market and have since the creation of the EU. And I tried to find where those accounting rules are. I don't know if he was actually somewhat misspeaking and referring to this GRA because that seems universal amongst EU members. Um, so that's just like a dangling thread that I was not able to to um, resolve. Uh, okay. And here's the last reason why I let myself get sucked into buying more gold, which is this other article he has called Estimating the True Size of China's Gold Reserves. And I'll just, one one line, this is again from Gold Observer, China and European countries are in agreement to equalize their ratios of monetary gold relative to GDP in order to prepare for a global gold standard. So there's this like ratio of like, I think it's 20%-ish of how much gold they hold. And there's... um. Monetary gold means gold held by the central bank, and then non-monetary gold just means any gold that's held by people. Hmm. And China has been encouraging their citizens to hold gold for like two decades. And if you add the what um, the gold observer goes to great lengths to try and figure out how much gold they have, and a huge part of trying to figure that out is trying to figure out how much gold is in the country that is non-monetary gold. And if you add non-monetary plus monetary, China is approaching this, you know, it's not about having an absolute number of, of ounces of gold. It's about having a certain amount of gold relative to your GDP. And I think it's around 20% and China's getting close. So um, all of those things 
like gave me gold FOMO and I bought some gold. So you got sort of banking on fiat currencies continuing to be depreciated, which is a pretty safe bet. And then maybe governments start to backtrack a little bit towards a gold standard again in that environment. And so therefore, yeah. we'll some gold is pragmatic. Yep. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 